Hello and welcome to the first Tenor's Square podcast. My name's Richard Dew and I'm going to be talking about the case of Rocken v Rocken. The decision is won out recently by Mr Justice Miles. It's a case involving two quite interesting aspects of the law of probate. The first was a question of cross-border probate, the question of whether Norwegian rules of inheritance apply to the estate of someone domiciled in England and Wales. The second was a question of whether a specific legacy, that is a gift of something specific in the will, failed or redeemed when the subject matter of that gift changed at a time when the deceased lacked mental capacity. So we're going to look first of all at the international probate aspect, Norwegian aspect. What first of all is the rule that applies when we're considering which law applies to the estate of someone who has an English and Welsh connection? Well, the English principles, or the English and Welsh principles of conflicts of law, are that the law of England and Wales applies to the immovable property located in England and to movable property of someone who is domiciled in England and Wales. So to put it more colloquially, land and money passes in accordance with the law of England and Wales if the individual is domiciled in England and Wales or the property is located here. Foreign land will always pass in accordance with the law of the foreign country, although it is possible the foreign country will look to the law of England and Wales to determine that, and so then it would pass in in accordance with that law. In this case, the individual, although they had been resident and probably domiciled in Norway some time ago, had moved to Wales, had lived there, and had definitely become domiciled there. So at their death they were both resident and domiciled in England and Wales. So on the conventional approach of a conflicts of law, it would be determined that the law of England and Wales would apply and accordingly their will would determine the division of their estate. It was, however, argued by the claimant in this case that principles of Norwegian law ought to apply. It's first necessary, I think, to have a look at the principles that they sought to apply and then understand how it is they said they could apply to this estate, given the domicile of the individual. Under Norwegian law, it appears, there is a principle where on the death of the first of two spouses to die, it is possible for the surviving spouse to make an application to the Norwegian probate court, which will almost as always, it would appear, be granted, and that will permit the surviving spouse to take the estate of their deceased spouse, combine it with their own estate and have what's known as an undivided estate, and Coming with that are certain obligations imposed by Norwegian law to divide their estate up, that is, the joint uh, undivided estate, up on their own death. There's some freedom as to how they can do so, but there are people who must receive certain amounts, including the children of them both. So there's effectively a system of fixed succession with a degree of flexibility under Norwegian law. And critically to the claimant's case, there's a system of choosing which system applies to you on the death of the first spouse to die. How does the law of England West determine which law applies? Well, we've looked at the issue of conflicts of law, which apply in conventional probate principles. What the other side said was that was merely the principles which applied where one was determining how probate principles applied. And they said this is something else. This should be characterised as a different issue And if it's characterised as a different issue, they said, then different cross-border principles would apply. 
So they said the court should look at this as a question either of contract or of trusts. And they said if one did it that way, then the English court should apply the Norwegian law, that is, the Norwegian law of contract or a Norwegian law of trusts. That was the argument that the judge had to consider, whether to re-characterise this dispute as one not of probate, but as something else, a contract or a tort. The argument was always difficult. We actually brought an application for summary judgment in the face of the claim, although the master, faced with that application, decided to turn it into a preliminary issue. So the judge had a, not a summary judgment application, but had to decide on a preliminary issue basis whether this was a contract or a trust. As he says in his judgment, it doesn't look a great deal like a contract. It didn't involve an element of choice, of voluntariness. You chose the system which applied to you, but then everything flowed from the statute, the Norwegian statute. The claimant, who of course was claiming under the contract, was not obviously a party to the contract. As a matter of technicality, someone seems to have represented the miners, as he was at the time, before the probate court, but that seemed to be a formality, and there was no evidence that he was a party to the contract. There was no element of sort of consideration of offer of acceptance and absolutely no question of freedom. So it didn't look a great deal like a contract, and so the court decided that it wasn't. So the next issue was that of trust. This was at least more interesting and perhaps a little bit more hopeful from the claimant's perspective. The sort of Norwegian arrangement looks an awful lot like our system of mutual wills. That is a case where parties, testators, agree what their testamentary provisions will look like and are bound by that and enforced by a system of trusts. Could the court therefore see this, interpret this, and the Norwegian aspect, as a trusts case? Well, no, not really. There are two significant problems with doing it. It was argued through the veil of the Hague Convention, which provides that countries must recognise trusts in certain circumstances. So the judge had to consider whether it was a trust in accordance with the principles of the Hague Convention and also had to grapple with whether the Hague Convention assisted in this case. So did it look like a trust in accordance with the Hague Convention? Well, no, not really. There wasn't a trustee as such. Mrs Rockin, the surviving spouse, simply took the estate of her husband and then was entitled to use it for the rest of her life. To the extent to which she had obligations during her lifetime, they were imposed on her by the statute and they gave certain rights to the heirs. But there was no system of holding the property separately or by way of trustee. Yes, so she didn't also hold the property separately, so there was no conventional separation of her estate from that of the trust property. And the court also found that to the extent there were other obligations imposed upon her, they derived purely from statute and weren't duties of loyalty or fiduciary in their nature. So there was nothing really that could be described as a trust within the definitions in the Hague Convention or indeed any other English concept of trusts. Perhaps one of the more interesting aspects was whether it was really possible to describe this as a Norwegian trust. And we argued very strongly that in a country which has no applicable law of trusts, there is no basis for the English court to say that is a trust in accordance with its law. There's no trust in a country which has no trusts. And the other side picked up on a couple of cases where the court has recognised that England or indeed Cayman or other countries with laws of trust can have trusts of property where the property is located in a country that doesn't have the law of trusts. But that isn't imposing, say, a Saudi trust over Saudi property. That's imposing an English law or a Cayman law trust over that Saudi property. So in our case, we said there can't be a Norwegian trust 
of Norwegian property because Norway has no law of trust. The judge didn't quite decide that. I think he shied away from that decision a little bit. But he did decide that here the Hague Convention had no application, so there was no uh, applicable Norwegian trust. And what he then does in the judgment is loop back, as he says it, to the issue of characterisation. And he says once you exclude questions of contract and trust, this is clearly just uh, a question of the principles applicable in probate. They apply the law of England and Wales. And so this case is determined in accordance with England and Wales. And so the Norwegian inheritance obligations had effectively fallen away once the deceased became resident and domiciled in England and Wales. So we succeeded on that issue. So there were two issues. The second issue is one I describe as a redemption. As I say, what happened here was that the deceased in her lifetime had moved some money from a Norwegian bank to an English bank, but her will had contained a gift of the proceeds of her Norwegian bank accounts. So what the claimant said is at the time she did that, she lacked the capacity to do so. And so the gift in the will should not fail. The subject matter should be treated as if it's the property in the English bank accounts. So the question really the court had to grapple with as a preliminary issue is whether there's any principle that a gift does not a deem in those circumstances. We said that the starting point is a case called Banks and that West Bank. I was in that case. In fact, I was the only counsel in that case, and I lost it. Um, so what did it establish? Well, well, in that case, the transfer of, in fact, the sale of a house had occurred at a time when the individual lacked capacity, but the person who carried out the sale was their lawful attorney, I think appointed under an enduring power of attorney. And the court decided in those circumstances the gift did not a deem. So on the face of it, that wasn't terribly promising for the claimant. But they said that it pointed to an exception, which was not applicable in this case, where the individual who carries out the action was acting without any authority at all and in circumstances where the individual lacked capacity. Well, we said that's not right at all. We, we pointed to a number of earlier cases which were cited in the Banks and NatWest case, which grapple with that question and ultimately seem, as, as I said to the judge, to decide that the, the only principle of redemption is that if the property no longer exists at the date of death, then the court is entitled to consider whether there is property which is substantially the same thing. So in, in the case of re Slater, it, it refers to shares which have changed in nature but which can still be identified by the court as being substantially the same thing. And there's a later case where bank accounts were changed from, I think, one form of account to one with a higher rate of interest. And the court said, well, it's really the same bank account. But there isn't a principle where property which changes its nature at a time where the deceased lacks capacity means that the gift does not a deem. And so that's what the court decided, which is, I think, right. And in this case, that caused the gift of the Norwegian bank account to fail because there simply was no Norwegian account. Now, I should say this decision is likely to be seen as controversial, particularly overseas, because in Australia, banks in that West Bank was heavily criticised, and there are a number of decisions which go against it. But I think under English law and looking at the previous authorities, there just isn't a proper rational basis to say that there's any principle other than if the money's not there, if, it, if the gift, if the assets don't fit the description within the will, then the gift fails. So that's the case of Rockin and Rockin. I'm very pleased that you've listened to our first inaugural podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. Watch out for more content from us over the coming weeks. Thank you all very much. <laughs>